Welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy, but your host for today's episode is none other than Andy Steiger. Before we get to that, I got to let you know, Launch 23 is coming up. You've heard us talk about it. September 17th, 12 to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time at Gracewood Manor in Linden, Washington, United States. For more information, head to apologeticscanada.com slash events and check out the launch event. Once again, the AC Leadership Summit is well on its way. October 27th to the 29th, join us in the beauty of BC's coastal mountains as we engage in conversations all around leadership. The Leadership Summit seeks to bring together aspiring Christian thought leaders from across the West Coast for an incredible weekend of networking and equipping. This is an opportunity for young professionals and student leaders aged 19 to 30 to meet one another and grow together as Christian leaders. This year, we'll cover topics such as what are my leadership strengths and weaknesses? What is a thought leader? How do I grow practically as a leader? For more information, head to apologeticscanada.com slash leadership dash summit dash BC. And we hope to see you guys there. Registration is open right now and it will go fast. So make sure you apply today. That's all for me. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger. I am joined today with John Marriott. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Great to have you here. Uh, joining us from, I'm guessing, La Mirada, but maybe you're outside of La Mirada. Uh, outside of La Mirada, Pico Rivera. All right. In California, or Cali as they like to say, teaches at uh, Biola University, where I did my master's degree and absolutely loved being there. It's uh, it's a great school. Uh, how's the weather today? It's hot. It's very hot. <laughs> you uh, know, my first day of class when I got there, uh, they were having a heat wave. It was 114 the day I arrived. I thought, where have I moved to? No, it's not that hot. It's not that hot here today, but my house doesn't have any air conditioning, and it was about 95 today, so it's still about 85 right now in my house. So if you see me going like this, it's because I'm sweating in here. Oh no, kidding! You are you are you're crazy, and but maybe that's to be expected because you are Canadian. If I, I understand am, correctly, uh, yeah, I am. I am a Canadian, uh, a lifelong Toronto Maple Leafs fan. So, <laughs> well, judge well, discernment based on maybe based on that. But I know, I know that's okay. It's okay. We're not too opinionated on our hockey here at Apologetics Canada. But you are originally from Ontario. Yes, to Saint Marie. Great. What brought you to the United States? Well, after I got married, I was working in Waterloo. We were at a, working in a church. My wife and I, I was a youth pastor at a place in Waterloo called Lincoln Road Chapel. And then I started doing work, uh, became friends with the director of RZIM, uh, Ravi Zacharias' ministry at that time. Uh, Joe Boot is a name that some of your listeners will be familiar with. Joe and I yeah, became absolutely. I moved to Southern Ontario the year that Joe moved from the UK and we became friends and he started uh, bringing me on and, and inviting me to participate in events. And uh, I, I enjoyed it, but I felt like I needed some, some more training if I was going to be doing something like that, maybe in a more full-time way. So we headed out here to Biola to do the MA in apologetics and one year turned into two, turned into four, and now it's turned into, I think it's been 18 years now we've been out here. Wow. Well, wow, that's great. Well, we were talking before the show, and it's interesting. The topic that we're going to be getting into today is deconstruction, deconstructing, deconstructionism, as it's you know referred to in some different terminology. But this is actually the topic that you did your PhD on at Biola University, or doctorate. Yes, yes, and no. It depends on how how you want to define those words. Okay, <laughs> let's my, define them. <laughs> so I, did my, I did my dissertation on, uh, it was called The Cost of Freedom. Um, and it was looking at people who once identified as Christians and now who say, I don't believe in that anymore. So the term that often is used for people who leave the faith is, is someone who's deconverted or they're in the process of deconverting. And um, that would be my area of real interest and in, is talking to people who say, I don't believe it anymore and I'd like to know why. What does that process look like? Is there something that maybe the church is doing that maybe sets people up for a crisis of faith that leads to a deconversion? Uh, deconstruction can certainly lead to deconversion, 
but it doesn't always have to. And um, one of the ways that um, that I like to sort of think about it is uh, sort of it's a taking apart and putting back together, and hopefully taking apart and putting back together a, a faith in a way that's more faithful to Jesus. Um, unfortunately, though, one of the things that um, that my co-author um, Sean McDowell and I discovered, though, is as we talk and think about this, is that often people put their faith back together in a way that maybe doesn't look so much um, like historic Christianity. And so we decided that from having enough conversations with Biola students who said that they were deconstructing, uh, we would like to put out a resource that would help young people who are thinking through um, rethinking their faith in a way that allows them to be, you know, have a faith that feels genuine to them, but is within the bounds of historic orthodoxy. And uh, what John's talking about here is this new book that's coming out. I actually don't even know if it's out yet. I got like a early copy. It's not out yet. August 29th. Okay, August 29th. And it's called Set Adrift. And so I guess that's one of the benefits, I guess, of running an apologetics organization is you get you get books sent to you before they come out. And the subtitle is Deconstructing What You Believe Without Sinking Your Faith. And I, I think uh, this is an interesting distinction you're making that I, I've kind of played with, but uh, didn't realize, you know, more of the nuance that you're sharing. Because on the one hand, we understand deconstructing. And so I've always kind of juxtaposed that to reconstructing, that, you know, you can deconstruct, but you should be looking to reconstruct something. And I guess really what you're saying then is there's those who deconstruct with no intention of reconstructing, and then this becomes a deconversion. Correct. Versus somebody can deconstruct in a healthy way that's seeking to build something stronger and better in its place. Yeah, that's right. And and also, they can also deconstruct in a way that ends up with a faith that's a Christian, at least in name, but, but may not resemble really historic Orthodox Christian faith. Yeah, which in the book you bring up with regard to like progressive Christianity and that sort of Correct. sort of thing. Yeah, interesting. So I'm I'm really looking forward to getting into this topic. It might be of interest to you that went to Biola, every intention of of heading out on the mission field actually afterwards. But I began to hear the startling statistics of the number of young people leaving their faith. And and in fact, in your book, you you share some of those statistics and. One of those was was really arresting. One statistic that came out said that for every one person that comes to faith, four leave the faith. I, I read that in your book. I was just like, my goodness. I mean, that that should really cause the church to pause and to rethink evangelism. I mean, I, I don't I don't know I don't know your thoughts on that, but I mean, just doing a better job at discipleship is one of the best forms of evangelism that you could do right now. Yeah, that study comes from uh, the Pew Research Center in 2015, they put that out. It would be interesting to see what the numbers look like today, because the trend just continues. And all of the studies that are coming out indicate that there is just uh, a tidal wave of people who are no longer identifying as Christians. And I, I try and avoid saying whether or not they've lost their faith or they were once you know, regenerated and no, they're no longer born again. I try and stay away from passing those kinds of judgments. I suspect that um, in, in many cases, you know, if we watched a person's life long enough, we might suspect maybe they really didn't understand who Jesus was. They made a profession, but maybe, you know, there was no deep root there. And, uh, and, and they fell away in a time of, of testing because they never truly were born again. I'm not, I don't doubt that at all. But there are lots of people who will testify that they really love Jesus, that they believed it, that they lived out the Christian life. But eventually they succumbed to some sort of a a doubt or or a problem uh, in their life. And I think that your question is really a a good one to ask. And it's been one I've been thinking about quite a bit lately. Um, And that is, what is the gospel that we're, we're sharing with people that we're calling them in to be a part of? And I'm becoming more more convinced that, um, you know, that Jesus calls us to count the cost. It's not the fine print of Christianity at the very, you know, in, in, in Luke and in other places throughout the gospel, he talks about, if you want to follow me, which means be my disciple, which means eventually later in the New Testament, be a Christian, um, that you need to count the cost and that Jesus needs to be Lord, at least at least the intention of making him Lord and making him the captain of your life and laying down your arms and surrendering to him as the king. I'm not sure that that is a message that uh, often gets preached enough. 
I think a lot of young people hear the message that they need to believe. Believe is translated, have mental assent towards certain propositions. Right. And then when those propositions become questionable, it's easy to let them go because perhaps for, for some, at least for some, there was, there was never a real deep root and a personal connection to the person of Jesus. Now, there will be people who may hear this and say, but that's not me. I really love the Lord and I really tried to follow him, but my faith just evaporated. And, um, and I'm certainly sympathetic towards people who have that. And I pass no judgment, judgment on them because being a Christian in the 21st century in the West is becoming harder and harder to do. Right. Now, I think it, it, it is interesting in your book, you take the time to define what a Christian is. And I was, I was thankful you did that. It's something that I, I often do myself, even explaining what that word Christ means, Messiah, you know, anointed one, and referring to ultimately the kingship of who Christ is. It's, it's not, you know, Christ isn't the last name, it's actually a title. And, and so ultimately, you know, it gets to the point you're making there, you're, you're bowing your knee to King Jesus, you know, Kanye West got it right on the, on his album, right? It, it's King Jesus. Maybe he didn't get a lot of other things right, but that's okay. Uh, and, and whether or not, right, you're going to submit to him. Yeah. And the numbers in Canada aren't all that different from the numbers in the, the United States. Several years ago, I would say at least five now, there was a study that came out done by Canadian researchers on the Canadian public, and it was called hemorrhaging faith. Right. Yeah. And, I engaged with that study quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it seems like this is just a growing trend. We see it in the West in general, that um, there is a growing disbelief in God. And Ryan, Ryan Burge, who teaches at Eastern Illinois University and um, uh, has, a, has a, I mean, almost every week he comes out with new statistics and new graphs on the state of the religious landscape in the, in the West, specifically the United States. He came out with a statistic that you may be familiar with. It was about uh, maybe four or five months ago. And that was within 70 years, if the current trend continues, there will be more people who identify as non-religious than there are people who identify as a Christian, which is really startling because there was only about 23% of the United States population about 10 years ago who identified, or sorry, there was even less than that who identified as, as a non-believer. And there was about 75% of the United States population that identified as some sort of, of Christian. And he says within a generation, if the trends continue, that there will be, they will cross, and it will be about forty-six percent will say I have no religion whatsoever, and about forty-four will say that they are still some sort of Christian faith. And uh, I suspect that in Canada, we'll get there first. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's a topic in of itself. I mean, you know, back in two thousand ten, when I was at Biola, we would look at Europe as the trendsetter of where things are going. I'm going to tell you right now, that is not the case. Mm-hmm. Canada and the United States unfortunately, are the trendsetters and are yes. exporting our ide- ideologies around the world. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I, and I used to think that whatever happened in Europe about 20 years later would happen in Canada, and then about 10 years later in the United States. And I think you're right. I think that's actually flipped. There's much more of a, a radical social agenda that is originating and coming out of Canada and the United States yep. than is actually even coming out of Europe in many cases. Yeah. And you know, I'm sorry to say this, you know, well, you're, you're Canadian and live in the United States, so you can appreciate this, but really it's always, to, it's almost to province to province, state to state. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you're comparing United States to Canada, it's not a straight comparison. It no. depends upon where and what, and they really, you know, jostle for position for, uh, um, you know, more uh, ideologically driven in certain areas. Unfortunately. Yeah, and it, and it breaks my heart because I love I love Canada. I live down here, but um, I connect sometimes with a group called uh, Canadians Abroad, who you know who get together. Uh, we we do the Terry Fox run every year. I have a picture of Terry Fox on my wall in my office, right? <laughs> alongside of, alongside of Wayne Gretzky. I'm not sure you could get any more Canadian than that. Wait, one more. I actually have one of those plastic Tim Tim Hortons cups in my office. Right? So I love Canada, and I will get back there any chance that I get. But it just breaks my heart to see what's going on there. And then, of course, here in, in the United States, as, as uh, we move uh, really towards a, a much more post-Christian society, both, both in, forms, in form of belief and in, and in practice and value. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of amusing at the moment because I'm actually American. I was born 
in California, grew up in Portland, Oregon, and then I came to Canada to go to school. Uh, you you kind of did the the reverse. Yeah. Uh, so so I think we share an interesting perspective here. One of the things that I want to hear from you is. I think an important question that we should be asking, and that is wh- why why the trend in the way that they're heading? Like, what's going on? Before you, before we delve into that question, though, um, you know, we this is such a good topic. We've just jumped right into it, but I want people to know a little bit more about you because this is an area of expertise for you. So you've done doctoral work in it, but tell me a little bit more about uh, about your work in. Uh, and and even your 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 family uh, before we sure. before we head into that important question. Okay, um, so I, I came out to Biola, did an MA in apologetics like yourself, and I did another one in philosophy. Then stuck around and did one in intercultural studies. And it was while I was doing my degree in intercultural studies, I discovered that one of my heroes had lost his faith, and uh, that really who was that. His name is Jonathan Edwards. He's the world record holder in the triple jump from Great Britain. Just so happens to share uh, his name with a theologian. Yes. Yes. And, and I was in university on an athletic scholarship during the time that Jonathan Edwards broke the world record. Now, prior to him breaking the world record, he grew up in a very conservative Anglican home. He was uh, convinced that he shouldn't compete on Sunday. He had missed world championships. He had missed Olympic trials because they were on a Sunday. So he was really a modern day Eric Little. He had a change of heart because he had a change of theology. He came to believe that he could compete and honor the Lord on a Sunday. And that year, he broke the world record three times. He jumped 18 meters, 29 centimeters, which is 60 feet a quarter of an inch. Uh, He broke the world record three times that year. And then he jumped even further with a little bit of wind at his back. And and I was at university doing the triple jump. I had followed Edward's career up until that point because I knew that he was a Christian. And I was doing terrible. I mean, just absolutely horrible to the point where I thought I'm going to quit. I felt so much pressure because I wasn't performing and holding up my end of the bargain. And I was getting a scholarship, but I wasn't jumping very far. Actually, I jumped farther in high school than I did when I was at university in the United States. And um, that got to hurt. It was really, yeah, it was very, it, it hurt in lots of different ways. My pride, my body, you know, everything. And so I went to Florida State University for a meet, and my roommate comes out and he says, hey, you're never going to guess who's in the weight room. Well, it turns out Jonathan Edwards was in the weight room training for the Olympics in 96 in Atlanta, and he was in Florida training. So to make a long story short, I waited till he was all done. I went over, I told him my sad story and thought that maybe he could help me and told him I was a Christian and I had been following him for years. And he said he didn't think he could help me, but he said, I think maybe my coach can. And how would you like to go out for lunch? So he took me out for lunch. We talked about when he graduate, when he finishes his, his athletic career, he wants to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, we talked about, you know, his, his faith journey. It was really great. I was really encouraged. He, I never jumped an inch farther, but I was really, felt like God had rearranged the, the universe for me. Mm. And then uh, a number of years later, I, while I was in my doctoral program, just beginning it, I hadn't decided on a topic. I thought to myself, I wonder what Jonathan Edwards is doing these days. He was the host of the BBC's longest running TV show called Songs of Praise. And um, he was the Christian representative that uh, was the sort of the face for shut-ins. As the BBC would go around to different church services and broadcast on Sunday mornings, Edwards would host it. So he's one of the most well-known Christians in all of the UK. And so I was researching, looking him up, and then I clicked on the most recent link and it said, Edwards takes leap out of faith. And I read the article and I couldn't believe it that he said he not only doesn't even believe in God anymore, but he's happier and more comfortable in himself now that he's no longer a Christian. And I couldn't believe it. And I said, what happened? And that's what spurred me on to trying to get to the bottom of what happened in his life. And I realized he is just one of tens of thousands of people who have gone through this. And, um, and I said, I, gotta, I, I need to know more about this. And that's what started me off on the, on the search to know more about why people leave their faith. Wow. Now you've you've been involved in some different organizations, if I understand correctly, that that are focused on this. Yeah, so at the at Biola, I was the coordinator for something that's called the Center for Christian Thought. Every so many years we pick a different subject. Maybe it's the relationship of the body and the soul, uh, or a particular virtue, like we've done uh, you know, humility and intellectual ver- uh, in, uh, as an intellectual virtue. And what the center would do is we would uh, invite scholars, uh, Christian scholars from various institutes and institutions around the world, 
that were focusing kind of research on that. We would bring them together in uh, in person and virtual conferences. They would go back and do research. At the end of the year, they would come present their research. We would put out some sort of a product, like maybe a book or something on these. We've had Alvin Planiga, uh, Nicholas Walterstorff, uh, Miroslav Wolf. Uh, those might be names that some of your listeners would be familiar with. Really well-esteemed uh, scholars, whether they were Christians or not. Um, and our most recent project was called the Sustainable Faith Project. And we wanted to figure out what is it that we can look at from a purely kind of a pragmatic, empirical perspective that, that folks and that people are doing that are successful in passing on faith from one generation to the other. And um, so we've had a couple conferences on that and, um, and, and tried to uh, glean some, uh, some insights from that. Unfortunately, though, um, the center has gone dark for the time being. Um, certain financial constraints at the university have uh, made it such that it's not economically feasible to, uh, to keep it operating at this time. So that project is kind of on a, a, hi- a hiatus right now. And then the other thing that I'm involved in, and that has, uh, through a connection through the Center for Christian Thought, is the Harvard University Human Flourishing Program. And yeah, um, I've heard about I'm that. collaborating with them on uh, trying to understand what is it that causes uh, human beings to flourish. And of course, we know that it's having enough uh, food and having shelter and having relationships. But Tyler Vanderweel is the head of the project, and he's a really committed Christian, and he's convinced also that there's a spiritual component as well. And so he's opened up the door for researchers to, to join in with Harvard and, and look at um, what is the role that spirituality plays in human flourishing. Yeah. And um, the, the, the group that I'm working with is, is sort of looking at um, what is the positive contribution that the Christian evangelical church plays to the communities that it's situated in. Um, it's almost the flip side of what does the church do that causes people to deconvert? This is what is the church doing well that would cause people to find it attractive. So that's a bit of my, my background. Oh, one last thing. I, I've also written five books on, on deconversion. So there you go. Oh, wow. Wow. So you are absolutely equipped to be able to uh, engage in this, in this topic and particularly this question. I gotta, I gotta say, by the way, or maybe ask, have you ever seen a TV show called Alone? it's actually based out of here in Canada. No, no. Okay. It's it's worth a watch. It's worth a watch because when I think about human flourishing, I often think about the show that takes people into the wilderness, they get 10 items, and then they have to try to survive. Well, I have seen that show. Yes. Yeah, and then... And then they wait until there's just one person left. Yeah. The thing that's fascinating about it, though, is when you're watching this, that food and shelter are really pretty low down on the you know, necessity, but what's, what's key, what's absolutely crucial is community mm. and spirituality, their, their, their faith. But yeah. with regards to this question though, from all the research you you've done and, and poured into this conversation, uh, why, you know, what is your analysis of why we got here and why so many people are leaving the faith? Yeah. If you were to ask people why they leave the faith, they will uniformly give you the same answer. And it will be because they came to the conclusion that it wasn't true. They will never say, it's because I wanted to sin more. Uh, they'll never <laughs> say, because I was never really saved. Nothing like that. Um, and I take them at their word. You know, I think that um, that for some people, they were born in the church. They were raised as a Christian. They maybe made a profession. and uh, But they never asked themselves the question, is it true? And at some point, you become old enough and more and, and capable enough and composed enough to be able to sort of almost step outside your paradigm, look back on it and say, is this something that I really think is true? So my own life, I became a Christian really at a young age. And by that, I mean, I prayed a sinner's prayer, five or six years old. But at 14, I heard a message at a Bible camp and the the, the speaker said that God has no grandchildren, that it needs to be your faith and not your parents. So then I made the classic sort of rededication. And that was when I was making it my own. But it was in my mid-20s that I stopped and looked around and said, so I've rededicated myself to this, but is this even true? And it was only when I felt as though that I had enough internal fortitude that I could ask myself that question and face the possibility that it wasn't, that um, I I think my faith really took a turn that became much deeper and more robust and, and more mine. And so I think that 
that for some people, though, that it takes the opposite turn. And it will happen usually because of a certain catalyst. And it will either be uh, an emotional catalyst where someone maybe feels as though uh, God has let them down, God has kind of betrayed them, that he hasn't come through even though they've tried to live for him and they've tried to serve him. And that might make them wonder whether or not God is there. Uh, sometimes people who go down that road and leave the faith, um, I've talked with an, a few of them who've actually come back because their deconversion, uh, if you would like to call it that, seemed almost more like it was, and I want to say this uh, gently, and I can't think of a better term off the top of my head, uh, almost like an adult temper tantrum, is that they weren't willing to give God what God wanted, which was maybe praise and honor and obedience, because he wasn't giving them what they wanted. They felt as though um, they had a reciprocal relationship with him, that they did these things for him, and God would give them the kind of life that they wanted, and when he didn't come through, they were done. Um, there are people who have certainly have value issues. They will say, you know, I, I cannot accept the historic, uh, history, the historic Orthodox teaching on sexuality. I can't accept any sort of eternal punishment. I can't accept that God would do some of the things that he said to have done maybe in the Old Testament. I should probably mention that a lot of these examples you're bringing up are what you address in your book. Yes. And one of the ones that I thought was really common that I've seen, you bring it up in the book, besides the, the other ones that you bring up in the book, but is um, the issue of suffering and evil. And you you share the story of Tony Campolo's son, Bart Campolo, I believe that's his name, who ends up walking away from the faith and very much began to question from suffering and evil. Yeah, he did. And in fact, you know, Sean McDowell and he are friends. Um, they kind of came of age together, uh, Bart being a little bit older. Uh, both Sean and and Bart have, you know, maybe the two most well-known evangelical fathers on the speaking circuit, you know, back yeah. in the uh, late 80s, early 90s with Tony Campolo and, and Josh McDowell. So Josh and, uh, or sorry, uh, Sean and, and uh, Bart had a, had a friendship and uh, they have done at least one speaking event together on um, Justin Briarley's Unbelievable uh, uh, podcast. And uh, if you're interested in, in listening to, to that dialogue, um, John, uh, Sean will tell you why he, he stayed and Bart will tell you why he left. And for Bart, it started out, a lot of it started out with uh, suffering and evil that he experienced because he was working with people in the inner city and he just couldn't wrap his head around the fact that if I wouldn't allow this to happen to somebody, how could God allow it to happen who's supposed to love them more than I did? And so Suffering and evil is a, is a, is a, is hugely problematic for, for many people, especially when it touches their life or someone close to them. When these things are abstract philosophical discussions, it's, it's easy to sort of ignore them. But, but when something hard happens and hits you in your life, that opens up the door to saying, you know, I've always kind of wondered about the Trinity anyway. Does that really make any sense? Isn't it a logical contradiction? And how can God be both, Jesus be both God and man? That doesn't seem like that's possible either. And then I've really struggled with, you know, reconciling science and Genesis. Well, maybe I don't have to, because maybe none of it's true anyway, because I can't believe that God would allow this to happen. And I say that sensitively, because I've gone through, as a, I, I tell a story in the book where I went through something very similar. Um, so I can, I can relate to the sense of disequilibrium that goes on when, when what you believe and the data of reality seem to collide. You know, I want to I want to bring something up that you do, even as we're talking now. You're doing it, and when I read the book, you're doing you did it quite a bit in the book too. I don't even know if you realize you're doing it. You probably do, but my time speaking with young adults, uh, I've learned that pathos proceeds logos. They're much more concerned with your heart before your mind. They want to know that you care about people, and I've noticed even as we've been talking, you constantly want to demonstrate that you love people, that you care about people, you want to be charitable and kind. And I see, I see, I see this in the book as well. Uh, are you doing that on purpose? Do you, realize, do you even realize you're doing it? Yes, it is. On, I'm I appreciate and I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful uh, that you say that because, yeah, I, I mean, Jesus says not only love your neighbor as yourself, but love your enemies, right? And so a lot of the people who are wrestling with this question of whether or not they think Christianity is true and it's something that they can commit their life to, it is the most grueling, existentially dark period of their life. Everything that they know, their identity, their relationships, maybe their job, 
all of that can be on the line for them. And it just can feel like you're out lost, as we talk about in the book, just out lost in the fog and you don't know where you believe, what you believe anymore. You don't know who you are. You don't know what community you belong to. And you don't know where the journey is ever going to end up. And so there's a lot of folks who are in that place and who are genuinely really struggling. And I think it's important for them to hear that, um, that there's compassion for that. Because if there's not, then uh, that's the surest way out the back door of, of any church and the, the surest way out to see away from any shore of Christian commitment. Yeah, so maybe listeners, you're, as you're listening to this, uh, so trust us in this. Pathos precedes logos. And that's not just a tactic. That's, I would, I, as, as you're saying, that's what it means to be a Christian. Love God, love people. That's what we do. Yes, and it's very easy to sort of feel like, oh, I, I can't be kind to you and I can't like you or love you or show you compassion because then it feels like I'm condoning what you're not believing anymore or maybe even attacking. And so I, I can't do that because I need to, you know, sort of pick the side here. And I think that that's a mistake. I don't think that loving people necessarily means condoning. I think that we can be graceful and also speak the truth, although that it's not always easy to do. And I don't often find the middle ground very well. Um, but I think it's something that we all really should strive for. As you said, not because it's a tactic, but because we really want to love people. Yeah. Now, let's get back into this again. People are leaving the faith. Now, you've come up with various reasons why they're leaving the faith, but this is a question that I noticed as well. I mean, these were questions I noticed people were asking, and I saw why people were leaving the faith. The thing that I was really stunned by, and I'm wondering if this is part of the problem, was how little the church was engaging the questions people are actually asking. Yeah, so I interviewed, I don't know, 30 people. I've read probably three or 400 narratives of people who have left the faith. People either feel like they can't raise those questions, or when they do raise those questions, they're told that they need to believe because it's a lack of, maybe it's a lack of faith. And, and what's, you know, the, what's the priority of being a Christian is being a, is a believer, right? And, and believers believe, and the, the more confidence you have, theoretically, the greater of a believer you are. What I like to tell students, um, especially at the university level, is that, is that faith isn't being certain but faith is having enough reasons for a hope worth acting on and worth committing to. Now, let's just pause there because you and I are both philosophers, and so we get that. A lot of people, though, hear that and think, you know, what are you, what are you talking about that you can't be certain? I'm certain in my faith. Like, I have confidence that, that my faith is true. So what, what do you mean by that? That's a great question. What I would say would be would be this. I'm sorry, I'm fighting a cat over here who's eventually going <laughs> to... I can see so, that. For those who, are, who aren't watching, uh, John's cat is, uh, he's wanting to, to get in on this action. Very, yeah, very friendly. So, right, so the, the distinction would be like a philosophical certainty, which would say, you know, I know without any doubt whatsoever that this is true. And then someone might come along and say, well, you know, is it, maybe you're in the matrix. How would you ever know? Or maybe... You know, you're in some sort of level of inception. Maybe, you know, you're dreaming. And, and, and so philosophically speaking, it would be it's really difficult to say that you could know anything for certain. This is the challenge that Rene Descartes uh, wrestled with, right, historically. But there are some people who are psychologically certain and who would say, yeah, yeah, all right, it's possible that I could be wrong, but I have no doubt that I am right. And for those people, um, that would be someone who would have a high degree of psychological certainty. I wish that that was me. I wish that I was someone who had this very high degree of psychological certainty. Um, I lack that. I think probably a lot of people who get into apologetics sort of lack that as well because they had doubts and they started searching those doubts out, reading books they and trying to be skeptical. Tend to be skeptical. That's right. And um, and so what, what I want to say is that you don't have to have this sort of deep philosophical certainty. That you're not, that, you know, that you're right. That, that it's okay to know that you're possibly wrong. But having having biblical faith is saying, listen, I have enough reasons that I am persuaded, inclined to believe that I think that Jesus is who He claimed to be, and so therefore I am going to make that commitment um, to Him as as Lord and to live out my life uh, underneath the narrative of the Bible. Very analogous to someone who says. You know, it's possible that the person that I'm engaged to and I'm going to be getting married to tomorrow might not be the right person for me. But I have 
a high enough degree of confidence and I want to enter into that relationship. So I'm going to make the commitment and then I'm going to live that out. And for the most part, I think those skeptical people like yourself and maybe many who are listening and myself find that the confidence comes actually more from engaging in the relationship and the commitment afterwards than it did in the psychological confidence that came before that was ground in disputed facts and arguments of varying degrees. And so that's what I would mean by, by you know, answering your question about the, what is faith. Right. And, and, you know, I, I thought of an ex- yeah, same similar example as you were talking. It's, it's like, I can't prove absolutely that my wife loves me. You know, it, it could be the fact that it's just a charade. Right. But I have good reason to believe that she does love me. And so I act on what I believe to be true. And I, and I think that ultimately our, our faith operates very similarly, yeah. where we have good reason to believe it's true and we, we trust that it is. What would you say then to a church? You know, they want to see people not only come to faith, but they want to see people not leaving yeah. the, you know, the faith. You know, what would you encourage those churches to do? The first thing I would say would be to sort of to step back and ask ask yourself, what are we asking them? What are we asking people to commit to, to be part of the Christian community that 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 maybe our local church specifically? Right? Do we have a doctrinal statement that is is really bloated that um, needs to that the person needs to uh, affirm secondary, third level kind of doctrines? Um, otherwise, they can't really be a biblical sort of Christian, right? So I loved the community that I grew up in. We were a um, sort of a a restorationist movement, right? Back to the Bible, back to the New Testament, non-denominational. We don't gather to uh, a a person like the Wesleyans did or the Lutherans did. You know, we just gathered under the Lord and and we tried to be as New Testament as possible. But in doing that, um, I sometimes came away with the belief that to be a real Christian, you need to be a biblical one. And what it meant to be a biblical one was you had to affirm all of these beliefs that uh, in hindsight, I look back on and say, oh, I-, I didn't have to affirm all of those beliefs because there's lots of wonderful Christians who don't hold to all of those sort of minor points on doctrine. So I would, I would ask, you know, are you setting up a house of cards of non-essentials and elevating them to, to the non-negotiables? Because if you do that, then what ends up happening is it's a house of cards and you pull one of those cards out and the, the entire edifice collapses. And, and um, you know, w- one of those, and um, I, I won't even share my position on this because um, it's obviously it can be a divisive issue, but I really come to believe that if, if the, a, a young earth literal six day creation account is elevated to an essential that you must affirm. Otherwise, then your salvation is in serious doubt. Um, that can be a, a real stumbling block for folks later because we're not saved by our interpretation of the, the first few chapters of Genesis, but by our understanding of who Jesus is in the resurrection. Wouldn't you say it could be vice versa as well? You could have a church that's saying you have to hold to theistic evolution sure. or... Yes. Or yes. something else, right? Yep. And, and is unbending on that position. So, yeah, because I, I often refer this, I've often referred to this on the show as a false dilemma where we, you know, it's you have to believe this to be a Christian, but then they go, well, I don't think I believe this. Yes. It's just some secondary issue like you're bringing up. And so they're like, okay, hey, I'm going to have to, going to have to leave the faith because I think the universe is old, for example. Yeah. Yeah, another one I think is um, I think that we 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 um, haven't done a great job of equipping young people um, with, and, and this is this is not a criticism of uh, so much of, of the church because I don't know how to do this better. I don't have a better suggestion, which is why I hesitate to raise it as a as a concern. But I don't think that we've done a good job of keeping up with the level of understanding that they have in other areas of life, and so the gap between their sort of their faith world and the world that they live in on a regular nine to five basis, um, the social imaginary kind of that they're, that they're swimming in um, just gets greater and greater. So for example, you know, when you go to kindergarten, you're also probably learning basic flannel graph Sunday school stories. And uh, those are cashed out usually in the most simplistic kind of terms, very straightforward, very literal, very wooden, but, and, and hit all the highlights. That's not a criticism, but that's just the way that it needs to be when children are at that age. But as you continue to go through school, 
you know, if you're going to be a math major, by the time you're done a, a master's in math, you probably know enough math and physics that if you had the raw materials, you could launch a rocket into space because you understand the the complexity of all that. And yet your understanding probably of Adam and Eve and the snake and, and the garden may still be at a Sunday school level. And so the gap between the world of the Bible and the simplistic sort of naive uh, understanding of many of those stories um, and the world where we're landing a rover on Mars, we're creating, you know, test tube babies that have more than two genetic contributors to it, right? You know, all of these right. crazy stats that, you know, that the crazy things that are going on in the world of science and technology, you can beam your voice into outer space and in real time, it lands instantaneously on the other side of the world. And you're having, we're having a conversation right now through the wonders of science and technology. And then on Sunday morning, you know, the story of, uh, you know, a, a simplistic sort of Bible story cashed out in simplistic ways. I think it's hard for people to live in both of those worlds. It feels like they're jumping back and forth. Let me, let me give you let me give an example too that maybe will hit different for people because I totally agree with you. Uh, I think of King David. You see this. I see this with Abraham and many others, where they have a, people have a very simplistic view of the Bible, where kids are taught that D- King David's a hero. And it's like, well, that's a very simplistic confused view of David if if you think the Bible's telling you about David because he's the hero of the story. That's right. Right. Yes. Or or Abraham. Or Samson. And you or Samson, you know, and you give people that very basic belief. Now they start and you encourage them, by the way, to go read their Bible. Well then they go home and read their Bible and they're like, man, that Abraham guy, I don't know, man. He gave up his wife not just once, but twice. Yes. You know, David's a murderer. This thing doesn't make any sense. No, and then all those laws in the Old Testament if you don't have any sort of understanding of the context of the of the, the Mosaic law and the time period and the surrounding cultures and all of that, and if you think that all of these are God's eternal ideal absolutes, then of course you're going to read it and say, how do I make sense out of this? One of the best resources that I think are that, that's out there for folks, aside from taking a, a seminar, you know, a seminary program, is the Bible Project with Tim Mackey. Mm. I think that they do a really admirable job in a very short period of time in the videos that they do and the podcasts that they put out to help people have a better frame of reference and, uh, and a more mature understanding of what the Bible is, where it came from, the context that it's set in, so that many of the things that strike us on first glance that seem so jarring, we can say, oh, okay, I, I have categories to put these in, I have a framework, I understand this a bit better. But we haven't done a great job of that. And to be honest, I don't know how to do it because you, it's very hard to get people to come out to you know, church in the middle of the week to take a mini Bible school program. But don't you think there, there have been some good examples with, with people like Timothy Keller, I think, did a good job at modeling what it, what it looked like to deeply engage the Bible, yet make it yes. understandable? Excellent. He's the best example of it. Francis Schaeffer, historically, right? He's been another one who's been able to say, look at culture, look at what the Bible has to say, and look at how either culture is the fulfillment of what we'd expect from the fall, and here's how it actually is playing out in real time, or here's what true human flourishing looks like and what we would expect if, you know, in some Edenic kind of a state, and here's how we... I think there are some really excellent examples of that, and and Tim Keller might have been the best one. Yeah. I think, though, what ultimately... It tells us is in the church, we need to engage at a deeper level if we're going to help those that are asking deeper questions about their faith. Here's here's something I would say, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, John. I think that one of the challenges in this that, that, I, that I think you're kind of identifying is that how do you ask a pastor to know everything, right? And, and ultimately, you just can't do that. But I can't help but wonder if maybe that's because we're viewing church from a uh, an unhealthy position of wanting to put a pastor too far up the pedestal, when we've got some great professionals within our own congregation that love God and are deep in an area. Like I just did an interview, by the way, with uh, an ER doctor um, just recently that is actually, he's one of the ethicists in our city. Like, And he deeply loves the Lord. And I'm like, that's a resource, church. Yes. That's a resource. You don't need to be that guy, yeah. but you can leverage what he can help with uh, to the to 
to help the church navigate some challenging issues. Yeah. So uh, a, a really great example of that is in, in the church that I attend here, because we're so close to Biola, we have Biola professors and we have this adult Sunday school and there's about six Biola professors in there. Sociologist, psychologist, historian, intercultural studies person, and, and they'll do the teaching. And, uh, you know, and, and when they do, they're always weaving in really interesting facts from their own discipline that say, mm. you know, uh, like the, the two psychologists um, that are really w- well regarded in, in, in uh, the evangelical world who happen to be in our Sunday school group, you know, they're always saying, you know, this recent study came out and it points to exactly what, you know, Paul says here and what Peter says over here and, and tying it in and, and, and you know, you, you leave there and say, yeah, there really is something intellectually robust about this tradition. It's not just sort of these <laughs> sort of stories that sound a little bit sketchy, like uh, talking snakes and talking donkeys and floating axe heads. And, and by the way, I, I, I affirm all of that, right? I, I really believe, uh, you know, that the, the Bible is true and what it, what it teaches and what it affirms. But uh, I, I think that we can help young people understand that in a way that is, has a little bit more intellectual gravitas to it without sacrificing the truth of the text. And um, yeah. so I'm all for that. Man, there is so much more we could talk about here. Uh, let me just ask you, is there anything that you're just dying to say and you're like, man, if this interview doesn't make this point, I'm going to die inside. Feel free to s- say it now. Yeah, if the Leafs don't win the Stanley Cup this year, I may jump off the bandwagon of being on there for like 45 years, at least 45 years. Yes. So, I mean, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. That's always just like right under the surface for me. Um, Let me see. Uh, Yeah, here's one thing that I think is always important to know, especially for people who are listening who have had someone leave the faith. And I want you to know that there is always hope. One of these days I'm going to write a book and it's going to be entitled Revangelicals. Those people who were Christians and who were, you know, of evangelical vintage and then left and who have come back. I hate to say this to you, but Justin Brierley, was, I was just talking with him, he, he shared with me his most recent book and it's like, that's the topic. Oh, good. That's good. I'm actually <laughs> so, glad to hear that. I really okay, he'll, okay. Do better, he'll do a better job of that than I will. He'll have like a lot of really great resources to pull from. So I'm really glad, but it's, <laughs> but it's when people leave the faith, right? Like, they will, lots of them, but not all of them, some sort of quietly go away, but others who um, are, you know, are, are, are maybe have been a bit more hurt and have swung to the opposite direction. Those are the ones that you kind of will find online and they're much easier to interview and, and talk with. Um, and so there are lots of people like that. But the ones who come back, there's not, there's not a, a website for people who have reconverted. Lots of deconversion uh, websites out there, but recon- reconverts are, are more difficult to find, but I'm coming across more and more of them. Some come back for intellectual reasons. I am as well, by the way, lots. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. and, 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 um, so I, I do want to say that, that there are people who, who do, who do return. There are people who, you know, if you want to call them prodigals or reconverts, people who backslid significantly and then came back. So never give up hope. Um, always, uh, engage with them respectfully, letting them perhaps even set the tone of the dialogue and how often you talk. Because one of the things that many people who've left the faith complain about is all my family does is try and reconvert me. They just want to have arguments and they want to show me where I'm wrong and where there's sin in my life and explain to me that I never really believed in the first place. So I think unconditionally loving them, listening to them well, asking them when it would be okay to have these discussions and leveraging the fact that they need to realize that for you, this is really hard as well. And coming from the Christian faith, they should know that for you, this is really hard because you still believe it. And now their soul is in jeopardy from your perspective. And so I think it's fair to say, I respect you. I love you. I want to hear you. But can we at some point in the future, can I come back and, and talk with you and 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 maybe respond to some of the issues that you've raised. We won't do this all the time, but um, for, for my process as well, although this isn't always ultimately about me, I would really like to be able to feel as though I've had a, a bit of a, a chance to, to share with you some of the, the, the things that after I've had some time to think about what, what you shared. And then remember that Peter is not Judas, right? Peter renounced the Lord three times uh, and he returned. Uh, so not everybody who denies 
and walks away um, is somebody who um, stays away. So I think those would be the things that I would want to leave people with is encouragement rather than, than discouragement because the numbers really are uh, are troubling when you, you look at them. And if you've had someone in your life go through this, it's terrifying. Yeah. And you probably feel like um, you're not sure what to do. So there are some resources out there that, that can help you um, engage and, and dialogue with, with folks who are going through that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting at our church, I, I run something called Questioning Christianity that is for people to come and ask their questions. And we have lots of people come out every time. We've seen people come to faith. We've seen people come back to the faith. We've, we've kind of seen the gamut. And, and it, is, uh, it is encouraging. It is encouraging. And, and I would encourage any pastor out there, listen, uh, sometimes I think they get discouraged that it's just a losing battle. But I want to encourage you that the gospel still is powerful and there is a, a deep desire for the gospel, but we got to be willing to engage, engage with people lovingly with the questions that they're asking um, with the gospel. Yeah, and, and calling, and them, the Lord calling them to the Lordship of Jesus as yeah. the core of that. So people can soon, when the book comes out, get the book, Set Adrift. Yep. Uh, you co-wrote this with uh, Sean McDowell. Great book. Highly encourage listeners to check that out. Is there any other place they could go, uh, John, to find out more information about you or your content? Yeah, um, I have a website. It's my name, johnmarriott.org. So Marriott, like the hotel, two R's, two T's. J-O-H-N-M-A-R-R-I-O-T-T dot org. And on there, you'll find resources for those, of, for, for those who are saying, like, I'm afraid I'm, I'm losing my faith and I don't want to. Uh, there's a series of short articles to, to, to read through and to think about. Then there is a section also for those who are trying to uh, love and walk alongside of someone who is in the process of really struggling and, and maybe losing their faith that can maybe help you uh, know how to do that well. And then uh, there are, uh, I, I have a, a number of books there too that you can find. Um, they're also on Amazon, but if you go to my, my webpage and click on the book section, uh, you'll find, uh, you'll find uh, I think there's five of, five of them there. The one comes out August 29th, the most recent one. And uh, there's a contact form too that if you ever would like to just chat about some of this stuff from any perspective, from, from someone who's left the faith and thinks that I'm way off base, from someone who is going through the struggle and then from somebody who is um, trying to help someone who is uh, going through it. Uh, I'm happy to chat with uh, anybody about this. Uh, hey, John, thank you for joining us on the show and thank you for the work that you're doing. We really, I'm really thankful. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It's an honor and uh, love to be on Apologetics Canada. <laughs> yes. Come, come back to Canada. I'll get you a, an ice cap at Tim Hortons. Over Man, you know, I'm going to be back in Canada at an apologetics conference in Sault Ste. Marie in October. Yeah. It's the, oh. uh, yeah. The ready answers conference, October 15th, 16th, 17th at Bethel Bible Chapel in, in Sault Ste. Marie. So wonderful. I'll take a look at that. That's great. Thank you listeners for joining us for the Apologetics Canada podcast. It's been a ministry of Apologetics Canada and we will come back next week with more things to think about. Until then, love God, love people. Bye for now. It's the AD podcast. Podcast. Podcast.